The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Listen to this. Paul continues to answer the charges that have been lodged against him. They thought he was a liar and selfish and so forth. And so back in chapter 2, verse the first 12 verses, Paul responds to the, these uh, slanderous insinuations that were being circulated by reminding the Thessalonians believers of how he and his fellow workers had behaved while they were preaching the gospel to them and how the gospel had great impact on them and how it penetrated the hearts of these people in Thessalonica or Thessalonica as it's pronounced today. Today what we're going to look at is this passage in uh, chapter uh, 2 verses 13 through 20 and if I can find this and um, Notice this, the title of the sermon, The Rewards and Costliness of Disciple-Making. I think most of you are aware, because it's just everywhere throughout the Word of God, that God's called each of us, every believer, to be engaged in making disciples. Now, making a disciple simply means uh, influencing people to become followers of Jesus Christ. It starts with the gospel. It ends with the gospel. It's all involved in the gospel. But first, a person has to come to faith in Jesus Christ, and then they begin to grow in their maturity like Christ as they follow him. It's one of the things about following Jesus, you become like him. And you begin to see characteristics in people's lives as they follow Christ. So we're going to look at this, the rewards and costliness of disciple making. There's great rewards, but there's also costliness. And Paul had experienced some of that, so we're going to look at this. The rewards of disciple making are found in verses 13 through 16 in chapter 2, if you're there, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16, this is what uh, Paul writes. For the reason we also, for this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it is really, the word of God, which also is continually performing, working in you who are believing. Now, notice there's three phrases here. First, they received the word of God which is talking about the objective external reception of the message and coming to understand it. Secondly, they accepted it. They embraced it. They embraced the message of the gospel. They believed that it was true. And then third, it began to work in their lives. It began to transform them. It began to have an impact in their life. The only way the word of God will ever change you is if you are believing the message, the central message of the, of the Bible, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth about who he is and what he has done. And as you are trusting the testimony of the Father, as you are trusting the testimony of the Father, you're believing it, the word of God produces real changes in your life. It begins to change your character. It begins to change the way that you live. It begins to change the way you think and the way that you walk with Christ and that's what discipleship is really all about. So this is what we pray for. The, that third thing, working, is, is, is an explanation of what uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says. The word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, bone and marrow, and is able to lay us bare, that is to fillet us. That's the, what that word means. It fillets us like... You've seen people fillet fish. It lays us bare before God. And he is able to judge our thoughts and our intentions. 
He sees our heart. He knows exactly what we need. You see, sanctification is all wrapped up in Jesus Christ. It is his work to sanctify his people. It's not my work. It's not your work. It's the work of Jesus Christ. And how does he do it? Well, what he does, he moves in. He comes to live within you. And his life lived within you is what changes you. It's what sanctifies you, as the Bible calls it. Sanctification is is Jesus Christ literally changing you from the inside out. Your attitudes towards him and his people begin to change. You begin to love people in a way that you never did before. You begin to, to love Jesus Christ like you never had before. And so this is what he's thanking God for. This is the rewards of disciple making. When you see the word of God producing change in the lives of those that God has brought to your path, and you are able to function as a disciple maker in their life. Now, disciple making is not a class you take. It's not a curriculum. It is a process of a person becoming more and more a follower of Jesus Christ. And it can only happen life on life. It can only happen as a person who is walking with Christ influences a person who's trying to learn how to walk with Christ. And when that takes place, discipleship takes place. People become more and more like Jesus Christ as they follow him. And so that's what Paul is talking about. And he is, what he's expressing here is he's bearing his heart. He's saying, this was so important to me as I watched it happen, that you received the word of God. That is, you, you took the message, you received the message and believed it to be true. And as you begin to put your trust in it, you begin to be changed by it. It began to do its work in your life. And the the Bible, the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ changes people. It changes us from the deepest level of who we are, right at the center of our being. It begins to change us. You can't do that yourself. It's something that the Holy Spirit does through the word of God. And the word of God centers on this. It centers on the person of Jesus Christ. This is who Jesus really is. That's what the Bible is telling us. It's telling us who he is and how he works in our lives and how we are to respond to him. And so this is the rewards of disciple-making. It's seeing people that you have loved and poured poured your life into, and to see Jesus Christ being formed in them. There's a little book by Brian Hedges called Christ Formed in You. Christ Formed in You. It's a great book. I mention it because it's a good book for you to read. And you can get a, a, a copy of it for a very reasonable price. Christ Formed in You by Brian Hedges. This is what discipleship is. It's Christ being formed in a person. And people begin to see Jesus in their life. They don't know what to call it. They don't know what's happening. But they can see the change. They can see the deep, deep change that takes place when a person is being conformed into the image of Christ. The evidence of the gospel's working in their life, he tells us in verses 14 through 16, this is what he says, for you, brethren, in other words, he's saying, this is how I know the Bible was working in you. The word of God was actually at work in your lives. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. Now, you remember the churches in Judea? That was the first church that came into existence. Judea is the area where Jerusalem is. When the gospel was preached on the day of Pentecost, In Jerusalem, a church formed with 3,000 people. You'll never see a church plant like that again. That in one day, there were 3,000 people who made up the body of Christ in Jerusalem. And, And what began to happen is they began to be persecuted. 
They immediately began to be persecuted. And many of them were driven out of Jerusalem because they believed that Jesus was the Christ, the son of the living God. And they were being told by their enemies, that is the leadership of, of the Jews, that Jesus was not the Messiah and they needed to stop saying this. Now it's pretty hard to get people to stop believing that he was, a, a, he was the Messiah when he was raised from the dead. Jesus was raised from the dead. They saw him. They knew that he had been raised from the dead, and so they couldn't help but believe that he was the Messiah as the Spirit opened their eyes to the truth of who he was. And he says, for you also, you became imitators of them. Now he's talking to the Thessalonians. This is far away from Jerusalem. These are Gentiles. The gospel has come to them, and they've believed the gospel. And the same thing began to happen with them. If you remember this story, you heard it read a couple of weeks ago in, out of Acts 17, that Paul and his, and his party came to, to Thessalonica, and they preached the gospel. He was in this little synagogue, a bunch of Jews that gathered together and some Gentiles along with them called God-fearers who believed that the God of Israel was the true and living God. They began to meet there every Sabbath day, or they had been meeting there every Sabbath day, and Paul comes in and he begins to teach them the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. And they begin to hear the message and believe the message and were changed by the message. And the church... Uh, turned his life inside out because he saw the power of the gospel at work in their lives. And they began to be persecuted. When you go back and read Acts 17, you'll see this, that they began to be persecuted because they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, there are places in the world where people are persecuted today simply by believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that he's the one who came into the world to, to save us by giving his life for us. There are places in the world where people get persecuted for that. And they, get, they receive all kinds of pressure. And so Paul says, you Thessalonians were imitators. You became imitators of the believers in Judea, that is in the Jerusalem area. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. And then he says, who both... The, the Jews both killed the Lord Jesus, and we're going to see in a minute that Paul was not anti-Semitic. He was a Jew, and he loved the Jews, and he wanted to see them come to faith in Jesus Christ. But he also knew that they had rejected their Messiah and put him to death because the leadership of Israel didn't want the competition. They didn't want to acknowledge that Jesus was the Christ sent from the Father. And so he says, they both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, which is an understatement, isn't it? They reject Christ. They want nothing to do with him, and they don't want anybody else to believe in him. And they were hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, with the result that they always are filling up the measure of their sins. That's a strange expression. We'll see in a minute, There's a quote. what in the world does that mean? And he says, but the wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Now, what he's doing here, Jesus told his disciples that, he says, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. That's still true. If they persecuted Jesus, they will persecute his followers. And that's exactly what's happening in the world, around the world today. Now, we don't experience persecution right now, and I hope we don't in the future, but there are Christians all over this world who are being persecuted simply because they have put faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And he says, he says, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. In other words, the proof that they were true followers of Jesus is they believed him at the cost of being persecuted. And I always want to ask this, have you ever been persecuted? Has anybody put pressure on you because you believe in Jesus? Has anybody demonstrated a kind of distrust and hatefulness towards you because you are a believer in Jesus Christ? Well, I think probably so. We've all experienced that to some degree, but what they were experiencing was all-out war, people wanting to destroy them because of their trust in Christ. He also, to suffering Christians, God has promised something. By the way, the Bible says Christians will suffer. It doesn't say you may suffer. It might happen to you. It says it will happen to you. You will suffer. Those who follow Christ are going to suffer. And he says that suffering Christians, he says, he's promised this, the Holy Spirit will rest upon you in our suffering. The Spirit of God and of glory will rest upon us in our suffering. What in the world does that mean? Well, it at least means this, that the Spirit will make you even more aware of the reality of who Jesus Christ is when you suffer. You'll be made more aware that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you'll trust him. You'll believe in him. It will strengthen your faith. If you go back and read the book of Job, you have an account there of a man, Job, who was tested beyond what any of us can even imagine. And the end result of it was it actually strengthened him and deepened his faith in God. And that's exactly what happens to Christians, all of us, when we suffer. And there will be suffering. The Holy Spirit will rest upon us in our suffering. He says in 1 Peter 4, Peter does, If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. In other words, it's a high privilege to suffer for the name of Christ. And so believers all over the world who are suffering for the name of Christ, we, as we have opportunity, we should tell them, you are blessed. That is a blessed thing. If you remember the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, when Jesus is saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And you think, what, what is he talking about? He's saying, when you come to realize that you are broken and that you are in dire need of God's Involvement in your life, you are blessed. And suffering as a Christian brings you to the place where you actually realize your desperate need of God's activity in your life. Sometimes we, we meet people who are suffering greatly for one reason or another, and our hearts go out to them, and we can't even imagine what it would be like to go through what they're going through. Well, when it comes to Christians, what is happening is God is working in their life. And he's doing a wonderful job of it. He knows what he's doing. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And then in 1 Thessalonians 2, in fact, I want us to look at this. It's right here. Chapter, chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, which I think I already read while I go, but look at it again. 1 Thessalonians 2, 14 and 15. He said, 14 through 16, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, that is in the Jerusalem area, for you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. Go back and read chapter 17 of Acts, and you'll see they were literally driven out of the city of Thessalonica because they brought the message of Christ to these people. I haven't, that's never happened to me. I've had somebody get angry with me one time in a restaurant and tell me off for even talking about Christ or praying over your food in a restaurant. But that only happened one time in my whole life. 
I'm not going to tell you how old I am, but I have eaten dinner in restaurants for many, many years. And I've only been accosted one time in the sense of somebody telling me they wish I would shut up and stop mentioning the name of Jesus. One time in all these years. And he says, they both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God. That is, they drove Paul out of Jerusalem because he joined himself to these followers of Jesus Christ, even though himself was a Jew. He was a, he was, he was one of those who had gone high up in the whole system, and yet he followed Jesus Christ, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, with the result that they always are filling up the measure of their sins but the wrath of God has come upon them to the uttermost. In other words, God, they have come to the place where what their future is, is the second coming of Christ in which he is going to judge this world because of their faith or lack of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a funny thing how God is. He gave his own son to save us from our sin. He gave his own son so that we could come to have a relationship with God and be brought into the kingdom of God and become a member of the family of God. And he takes offense when we, when people do not receive his son, they reject his son, and they're going to receive judgment because of that. And that's what he's talking about here. And then he goes on, 1 Thessalonians 1, I want you to turn back to chapter 1, verse 5. In chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit with much full conviction. He's talking about the conviction they had as they preached the gospel. Have you ever been witnessing to somebody and and all of a sudden you realize what deep conviction you had about the gospel? That you actually believe this to be totally true and life-changing? And he said that's what happened to them as they were preaching the gospel. The Spirit produced in their heart an absolute, deep, profound conviction that it's true what he was saying to them. And many of them came to faith in Christ. He was only there three Sabbaths. That was a short series, a three-Sabbath series. And yet, an entire group of people came to faith in Jesus Christ because of him preaching the gospel to them. You have friends in your life. You have people in your path that God has placed there so that you could be the mouthpiece of God in declaring to them. And what I mean by declaring is not screaming at them. It simply means that you tell them the truth about the gospel in the conversation that God gives you with them. And he will. If you're praying for it, he will. Ask him to give you opportunity to share the truth about Jesus Christ to others. And he says, our gospel didn't come to you in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we were made to be that God did in our lives. He changed us as we preached the gospel when we were with you for your sake. That's why, you see that? What a, what a plan for sanctification God has. He says, you want to be sanctified? You want to grow in the faith? You want to grow in your commitment to Jesus Christ? Bear witness to Christ. And in the process of doing that, God will work in you. He will change your heart. He will give you a deeper faith in Jesus Christ. I think every Christian has a desire. Sometimes it's sporadic, but we have a desire to grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Sometimes we're sick and tired of the shallowness of our life that's manifested many times, and we wish that we could, we could go deeper. We could have a deeper relationship with him. 
Let me tell you one of the best ways to do it. Become a witness of Jesus Christ. Talk to people about him. Just share what he's done in your life and who he is and why he came into the world. The, the, the New Testament is filled with truth about who he is and what he has done. Well, then we have questions in this passage. First of all, is Paul anti-Semitic? Is he against Jews? Well, look at this. Romans 9.3 says, Paul writes this, I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He said, I'd be willing to, jo- to die to see my brothers, my, my fellow Jewish brothers come to faith in Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus was sent to the nation of Israel. He was the Jewish Messiah, and they rejected him. And so the apostle Paul, who was a Jew, said, I pray for them. I lay down my life for them. I'll do anything that I can do to get the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ to these people to whom the Messiah came. He was not anti-Semitic. He loved the Jews, but he knew that their rejection of Jesus Christ is the worst thing that ever happened to them. And they were going to pay a heavy, heavy price for it. Galatians 5.10, Paul says, The one who is disturbing you will bear judgment, whoever he is. And he's talking to them about those who oppose the truth of the gospel. Who oppose the truth of the gospel. What I mean by opposing the truth of the gospel is undermining the testimony concerning Christ in the lives of those who are hearing it trying to keep them from ever taking it seriously and it having deep and profound impact in their lives. It's a dangerous thing to try to undermine the power of the gospel in the lives of those who are hearing it because God takes it very seriously. And then in Galatians 1, 13, he said, I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and I tried to destroy it. That's what Paul's talking about himself. Imagine that. He said, I did everything I could to destroy the church. And what happened to him? Well, he was going to arrest some, some, uh, some Christians, some Jewish people who had come, become followers of Jesus Christ. He went to arrest them. And on the way, he ran into Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, on the path to Damascus. And he's confronted by the Lord Jesus Christ. When, when Christ appears to him, it was a great light, and he fell on the ground, and he lost his sight. And then Jesus says to him, imagine this. Jesus says to the Apostle Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That was his Jewish name. Why are you persecuting me? And and Saul said, who are you? Who are you, Lord? He calls him Lord because he knows he must be God because he sees this this great manifestation of light that threw him to the ground. And Jesus said, Jesus tells him who he is. And then he goes on to tell him what he had, his plans for him. He wanted Paul to become a a witness for him. And he was to go to the Gentiles and bear witness of the truth about Jesus Christ. 1 John 5, 11 and 12, right before that, the verses before that, he talks about the father's testimony concerning the son. What has the father testified concerning his son? Well, we have these places like, for example, at Jesus' baptism, when, he, when he, had, he, he went to be baptized by John the Baptist. And as, as he's going there, God speaks from heaven and declares to everybody there within their hearing. He says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, if God were ever to say that about you, which he has, if you're a believer, he has said that very thing. 
This is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. Imagine that. He gives his, his testimony concerning the son. Same thing happened at the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus is there and, uh, and Moses and Elijah. And Jesus is, is revealed to them uh, as being who he really is, the eternal son of God. And God speaks from heaven. And the reason he does this is because Peter, who some call the, the apostle with a foot-shaped mouth, he's always putting his foot in his mouth, because what, what Peter had said was, because he saw Elijah representing the prophets and Moses representing the law, and he saw them there with Jesus. And so he says, should, we should build a tabernacle for each one of these. Let's build a tabernacle for Moses, for Elijah, and for Jesus. What did, what did the father say? You dingling. He didn't put it that way, but he did say, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Elijah. This is the eternal son of God. And that's what the gospel is all about. And that's what these people have believed. And so when Paul says, I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure, and I try to destroy it, he was bearing truth about himself. He used to be against Christ, but now he has become a disciple, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then notice this. Uh, how did they fill up their sins? It says you're, they're filling their sins up always. As long as you are rejecting Jesus Christ, it's as though you have a cup that holds the wrath of God that you're going to have to drink, and it, the glass is being filled up. Because God's wrath is going to be manifested against those who have rejected Jesus Christ. So what, is, what should that motivate us to do? It should motivate us to be as clear and aggressive as we can be in getting the news about Jesus Christ to as many people as God brings into our lives. Think for a minute the people that God has in your path right now. In other words, the, the, because of things that have happened in your life, you see this person on some kind of a regular basis. Have you ever thought, you know, God must have some kind of plan for me in this person's life. Maybe he wants to speak to this person about his son through me. Has that ever crossed your mind? Say yes, please. Yes. That's exactly what ha is happening. He is putting people in your life that he wants you to communicate as a witness of Jesus Christ concerning who he really is. Now, here's what happened to you. You somehow heard the testimony of the father about his son. Now, you may not have heard it in that particular way, but if you heard that Jesus died for your sins, was buried, and rose again, what you were hearing was the testimony of the father concerning his son. And that's why you first started paying attention to who Jesus was, because the Spirit kept witnessing to your heart that this is truly the Son of God, and he is the true Savior. He is the one who came to the world to die for you and to give you life and to bring you into the family of God. I don't know what kind of family you grew up with. Um, some of you I do, but I, do, I don't know what kind of family you grew up with. But I want to tell you, the family of God, the Trinity, being a member of the family of God means that you are now related to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I don't know what kind of home you, you grew up in, but you may have grown up in a home where you had a parent who didn't really care anything about you. In the family of God, you have a father who has told you over and over and over again, I love you. 
That is, I find deep and profound delight in you. You fill my heart with joy because of who you are. I, um, I have one child that we uh, had a falling out a few years ago, and I never thought our relationship would be restored. And in the just, in really, uh, in a very profound way, in the past few months, there's been reconciliation in our relationship. And I can remember one day just becoming aware of it. That, wow, all of a sudden, I now have a child who used to be, and in fact, she told me that I was her enemy. And now she treated me as though I was the most important person in her life. What happened? God did something to the heart. Well, your relationship with your heavenly father is such that you need to come to understand that he loves you. He takes great delight in you. First, uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says this. God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners. Now, he's writing this to a bunch of people in Rome. These people in Rome lived during the time that Jesus died on the cross. And when Jesus was dying on the cross, they were living in rebellion against God. And so what Paul says is, God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were in the process of rebelling against him, Jesus Christ died for us. And then the testimony of the Holy Spirit came into their lives and convinced them of who Jesus was and what he had done for them, and they put their faith in him. And they began to experience this relationship, a father who loves them. You know, there's plenty of people in this world who have fathers who don't love them, and they're aware of it. They're aware that their father doesn't have the capacity to love them and finds no delight in them. But you as a Christian, you have a father in heaven who has testified in a multitude of ways that his love for you can never, ever, ever be destroyed. He will love you for eternity. He finds delight in you. And he may be the only one in the universe who finds delight in you. But he does. He cares for you. And that's why he sent his son. Sometimes you hear this idea that Jesus, his job was to win the heart of the father for sinners because God hated sinners like you and me. But then Jesus came along and changed his attitude. That's not what happened. The Bible is very clear. Jesus coming into the world was a manifestation of the Father's love for you. Why did he send his son into the world? Because of his love for you. And why did Jesus die? Because of his love for the Father. And his love for you, we're told in Revelation chapter 1. God loves you. He cares about you. How did wrath come upon them to the uttermost? Well, what he's saying is the wrath of God came to hover over them in the sense it's ready to fall. God's going to bring judgment on those who reject his son. Uh, so wrath came upon them because of their rejection, their, their stubborn rejection of Jesus Christ. Why does Paul describe their sin as fulfilling a purpose? Because God is in control. God is sovereign. There's a verse that's very troubling to a lot of people in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 29. It says, those whom he foreloved, that, that's the term that's used for his, his setting his love on you. Those whom he foreloved, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, predestination is nothing more than a GPS. 
You know how you take your GPS and you're going you're gonna to go somewhere and you put in the destination and it tells you the route to take, right? Well, what it means, predestination simply means that God determined how he was going to do this. Now, I wish I could see the computer in heaven. I would really like to see how it is he's going to get you to become like Jesus. What, is, what does that trip look like? that he's going to take you down this path to become just like his son. But that's what he says. It's a manifestation of his love. How do you know God loves you? Because he's at work in you. He has a plan to conform you into the image of his son. And he's working that plan. Sometimes it frustrates you. Because, for example, we're told that one of the things that God uses in conforming us into the image of his son is suffering. I hate suffering. I don't know about you, but I hate it. I hate anxiety about the future. I hate pain. I hate sleeplessness. I hate these things. And yet the Bible says that God has chosen these things on the path to conforming you into the image of his son. He's going to make you like his son. And so he's willing to use things in your life that you don't like. And you can, you can get a, a sign and march around heaven and saying and and object to it, but it's not going to make any difference because God loves you too much. He loves you so much he's willing to allow you to suffer in order to make you like his son. Isn't it something when you see fellow believers going through times and you, you think, man, I wish I could rescue them from that. That's just too hard. That is just too much. I have a grandson who can't walk or talk or communicate, and he's now 19 years old. And it breaks my heart. For all these years, I've watched him, and I thought, wow, I wish, I, I wish somehow I could deliver him out of that, but I can't. And yet what I have seen is that God used this trial in the lives of my children, my daughter and son-in-law, to make them more like Christ. I was telling my son-in-law the other day, he's a very talented welder, very creative guy. He can do just about anything. And uh, I said to him, you know what's the most impressive thing about you? Is the way you love your son, Austin. He gets down on the floor with him. He sings songs to him. And this guy can't carry a tune to save his life. But he'll get down on the floor with him and roll around and sing to him. And he starts laughing. That little boy starts laughing and carrying on. And I thought, that's the most important thing, impressive thing about you. That you've learned how to love him. You've learned how to love him. And some of us, man, we have a hard time loving perfect people. Let alone somebody who has all kinds of needs and cannot reciprocate. But God takes us through trials in order to make us like his son. What in the world would ever motivate Jesus to come into this world knowing that he was going to have to drink this cup, which he talked about in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he said, if there's any way, Father, if there's any way that this cup can pass from me without me drinking it, and then he stops himself. It's a grammatical anomaly, he says. He's saying this, and all of a sudden he just stops himself. He says, but not my will, but your will be done. In other words, if it's your will, I'm going to drink this cup. And it was God's will. Because that's how he saved you. He drank the cup of God's wrath that you deserved so that you wouldn't have to. You know why? Because he loved the Father and he loves you. And so when, it, when it, we're told in John 3.16, for God 
so loved the world. Talking about the Father. The Father so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, which means his unique Son, his monogamous Son, his one-of-a-kind Son, who's been his Son from all eternity. He gave his only begotten Son that whosoever, whoever believes on him, would not perish, but have eternal life. That's good news. That is glorious news. And that's what God wants you to know and believe. That's what he wants you to pass on to others. There are people in your life that you, that you probably see on a regular basis that know nothing about Jesus Christ, and he wants you to be the one who can pass that news on to them. And they'll come to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and turn to him. And that's, what, that's why Paul says th- these are the great prophets of making disciples. It's what blesses your heart. You see God at work in the lives of people. You see God doing a deep and profound work. Now it's costly because he talked about what happened to him and what happened to them. The cost of discipleship. He said, we gave our own souls to you. You know, you can't be a disciple maker if you don't love people. I'm talking about the people you disciple. You can never disciple somebody you don't like. Never. You shouldn't even try. Because you're going to really mess it up. But you know what? God's able to move in your heart and cause you to love somebody that you thought you could never love that kind of person. And he says sometimes it also costs you this. He said, we were orphaned from you. It's actually the Greek word, orphaned. We, uh, we experienced a broken heart because we had to leave. We were driven out of town and we couldn't stay with you at the most crucial time. You needed us there. And so we were driven out of town. We went to Berea, down south, and then they went all the way down to Athens. And then he writes this letter to them, and he said, this is really hard. We want to be with you. We want to see what God's doing in your life. We want to be right there with you as you go through this. And yet we're orphaned from you. And this is, this is the hardest part about disciple-making, is that you begin to love people so much that it hurts when you experience what Paul experienced, that he was sent away. He couldn't be with those that he loved the most at that moment because they needed to go through some things that God would use in their lives. So that one of the hardest things about discipleship is you begin to love people and your heart's going to be broken in some ways. But it's worth it. It's totally worth it. So let me pray for you and pray for me as well. Our Father, we bow our heads and our hearts before you right now. We are so grateful for the fact that you've called us to this work. You've called us to be makers of disciples. You've, caused us, you've called us to influence people to follow Jesus. And we can only do that as we follow him. So we pray that you would fill our hearts with anticipation and hope and joy over this assignment you've given us. Thank you so much because of your love for us and for putting us in this, on this path to make disciples for Jesus Christ. And we pray, Father, we would see divine effects in our life. We would see people changed because of you using us in their lives. Most of us feel totally inadequate to do this. And we would always avoid it because we'd think we would just mess things up. But we pray that you'd give us a love for people that would, that would convince us deep down inside that you've called us to this. So I pray that you would use us in that way. For the glory of Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.